0: I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach.
1: I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? I
0: well, I can eat a sandwich. One of our unplugged. <laughs> Welcome to the broadcast, folks quit laughing at me i am eating a sandwich while i introduce this i'm very hungry because we've just been theologizing theologizing
1: about historiographical
0: about historiographical approach to history (laughs) hey guys how are you good good Good? well jj well jim you are good. glad to be here mike yeah, Thanks for joining us again. My pleasure. Thanks for staying a full extra week here at the Credo House. I mean, yeah. How's the week been? <laughs> <laughs> Audience members, thanks for
2: sticking around, coming back this week.
1: Our pleasure.
2: Or uh, come back after your bathroom break. right? Michael, this is really a great place you have. I mean, this is so exciting, what you are doing here. Oh, it really thanks. is neat.
0: Thanks, I appreciate it. It's, it's, it is a lot of fun. We talk about it all the time, though. Every time we're here, we try to get people uh, jealous about uh, the Credo House. We are, hopefully, planting these uh, in a lot of places. We've talked to you a little bit about uh, the possibility of you being a fellow at a Credo House. Yeah, I'm open to it.
2: This is is really cool. I could see myself doing this. Well, I
1: mean, the more people are here and see it, the people see this as such a unique part of discipling the Bride of Christ. Mm. You know, seeing this neutral location, kind of like Francis Schaeffer's Labrie, but kind of for a 21st century uh, American environment as well. And it probably is good for us to mention, Michael, that we're right now in the heart of our end of the year giving campaign especially at this broadcast. And a lot of what we're doing is trying to position ourselves in 2012 to be able to open our second Credo House and hopefully uh, on a path of other Credo Houses as well. And so uh, uh, hopefully you've been getting our emails. If not, we'd love for you to help partner with us to uh, propel us in two tw- 2012 to hopefully put a Credo House uh, on another block in America.
0: Good deal. All right, um, we're continuing to talk with uh, Mike about his book, The Resurrection of Jesus, Michael Kona is um, uh, if you go to his website risenjesus.com you can find out so much about him so much about his work so much about what he is doing as well uh, for the kingdom, and uh, just like us, he he has a ministry that uh, needs funding, and so uh, point people there. We fully endorse everything that Mike Lacona is doing, obviously, and he, he focuses upon the resurrection of Jesus and really defending and studying the resurrection of Jesus from a historical standpoint. Do you do anything else? I mean, why the resurrection of Jesus? Why not the Exodus or you know the did Jonah really get swallowed by a whale or something like that? Why do you why do you spend why, why?
2: risenjesus.com dot com well, uh, you know, the resurrection, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, our faith is worthless, right? Um, and then later on in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, hey, you know, if, if, if the dead aren't raised, then, you know, why do we do all that we're doing? Why do we suffer? Why did I fight the wild beast at Ephesus? You know, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The dead aren't raised, and so. But he says, you know, if Christ has been since Christ was raised, we know the dead will be raised. Will be raised someday. So everything comes. Uh, Christianity stands or falls on this this issue of the resurrection. Um, it can't survive if Jesus did not rise from the dead, and that's Jesus predicted it and said, "Hey, if you want to know whether I am who I claiming to be, um, you know, destroy this temple three days I'll raise it." Everything comes down to the resurrection of Jesus. So um, uh, initially. I, I wasn't that uh, fascinated by it. I was more into the you know things from astrophysics. You know to the show there was an intelligent designer of the universe. Um, but the, the more I, I spoke with Gary Habermas, the more I saw that, that this this issue is, is even of greater importance. And you
0: you edited or co-edited a book uh, called "Evidences for God." Yep, was it co-edited or edited? It co-edited with Bill Dembski. Yeah, yeah, and that that deals with uh, the whole. Spectrum of the defending of the faith uh, yep. as well,
2: right? Yep, we got stuff on philosophy, science, history, the Bible, uh, pluralism. That kind of shows your
0: broader interest there.
2: Dan yeah. Dan Wallace did a chapter in that, didn't he? He did. Oh. Wallace's Dan is just a. Brilliant scholar, I love that guy. He's, uh, he's really amazing. Mm.
1: Don't you think Dan needs to come up to the Credo House?
2: Oh, you bet. Um, he, he, I mean, I could see Dan doing something like this. He's yeah. he's an amazing scholar, oh, and he man. is just. Uh, I mean, he's a hippie kind of guy, <laughs> and uh, he's just so authentic and just a joy to be around. And one of the most careful scholars I've ever met. Yeah. So I've got a. Good, he is eccentric,
0: got, big time. Yeah,
2: we've all got our
1: Wall stories that, yeah. that have gone to Dow Seminary, but one of them that I love. So he is such a detailed guy, right? When mm-hmm. it relates to things, uh, a buddy of mine—I I had him with for class—but my buddy had him later in the afternoon for a different class. Wallace walks in the classroom with no shoes or socks on, <laughs> and walks up and starts teaching, starts you know lecturing, walking around and stuff. And uh, initi- you know, over time, a student raised their hand and was like, uh, "You don't have any shoes or socks on." He looks down. Not aware, he didn't have his <laughs> shoes or socks on. And says, "Oh, I took a nap in my office. I must have taken them off." <laughs> well, his class was like four stories above where his <laughs> office was, so he had walked down the hall, walked up all the stairs, walked into the class, was teaching, and didn't know he didn't have any shoes on.
2: Yeah, he's probably thinking about a new use of uh, periphrastic participle. Exactly. At some point. Yeah, he's got
1: more important things to do than to think about footwear. <laughs> well, <So. laughs> well,
2: back to what you were saying. I mean,
0: he is he is a he is a scholar and a pastor. One of the things that we try to do here at the Credo House is trying to meet between the seminary and the church. We we seek to fill like the the fellow position. We've had probably a hundred applications for people sending to me personally saying, "Hey, I'm about to graduate seminary." Some people who are already at seminaries who are saying, "If you establish a Credo House, I've always wanted to teach to the broader." evangelical world but teach at a higher level and higher expectation there's no, been no place to either the seminary or the pastorate and this is the place for it so dan dan may work uh work out of one of those because he is uh, both of those and, but
1: and, and shoes aren't required at the creed house right no, no right
0: now no at least not <laughs> matching shoes <laughs>
1: um
0: here we go okay uh forget what page it is on your book i, I i'm not that detailed i f- forgot to write it down you said you have come across evangelical Christians that said they would and asked if they would abandon the Christian faith if, okay, if a future team of archaeologists uncovered an ossuary containing the bones of Jesus. And let me go through all the qualifiers, all right, folks? Yes, they were the bones of Jesus, period. Somehow we know for sure they were right. the bones of Jesus. It's not, but it's not, you, not you can come back and say, no, they really weren't. No, this is the hypothetical. And in the hypothetical, they are the bones of Jesus. And you have presented as such, and these have responded
2: in what way? It's well, surprising to me. They'll say, uh, yeah, even if the bones of Jesus were, were discovered, they still wouldn't give up the Christian faith. And yet Paul's very clear in saying, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You know, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it. You know, that's how I'll show I have the authority to say and do these kinds of things. So, I mean, the resurrection of Jesus is the, is the testing point to know whether Jesus are, claims about himself are true, whether Christianity is true. So, if, if we discover the bones of Jesus, we know he hasn't been raised from the dead, and therefore Christianity is false. So yeah, the question is: if we could somehow prove these were the bones of Jesus, then um, would you remain a Christian? Oh yeah, uh, you know. But that's the same kind of faith. They wonder then why Mormons aren't persuaded to believe Mormonism when you have that kind of a discovery, uh, with say the uh, the Book of Abraham. Uh, you know some some interesting things there, and we can show that Joseph Smith didn't have a clue about what he was doing when he was translating the alleged Book of Abraham. And uh, if that's the case, how can we trust him on the Book of Mormon? I think it's the death now of Mormonism uh, and shows that, that Smith was a false prophet. Whether he was deceived or himself or a deceiver, uh, that's not in my uh, uh, you know, ability to judge. But either way, he was a false prophet. So, um, you know, people want Mormon and Mormons to convert to Christianity or Muslims to convert to Christianity, others, because you can, you can disprove those religions fairly easily. But, you know, if you disprove Christianity, they said, no, I'm not going to leave. But if you did discover the bones of Jesus, that would disprove Christianity. So linchpin issue. I think you've got to go and find another worldview if that's the case. So,
1: Mike, you've uh, you know, you've written 700 pages really showing how historically we can embrace the reality uh, much more beyond any other uh, claims that are put up as, as alternative realities that the resurrection really happened. But how do you then not get nervous when you turn on the evening news every day?
2: Well, why should that cause doubts about the resurrection?
1: Because what if they're about ready to say that we've we found something in Jerusalem and, oh. and we think that it might be the bones? So how can you be more confident in the resurrection today with this book, but then still be afraid that they might discover something?
2: Well... You could it, let's put it in the realm of uh, you know science and physics. You know we're not waiting with bated breath for um, the evening news to come on and say, hey, we just found in, uh, that the uh, grav- gravity is, is a, a false belief about physics. You know, is it possible that could be overturned someday? Yeah, you know it's possible. Anything's possible. But the thing is the in in historical investigation. The more a hypothesis outdistances its competitors in fulfilling the criteria for the best explanation, the less chances it has, that hypothesis has, of being disconfirmed in the future. And so one thing, as I said in the previous program, one of my surprises was in this research was seeing how far the resurrection hypothesis outdistanced its competitors. I really didn't think it was going to be by that much, but it's significant. There's really no close second place. It far out it. And after 2,000 years, if that's the way it is, then that shows that it's very unlikely of being disconfirmed in the future. Now, if somehow they did discover the bones of Jesus and somehow you could verify that these were indeed the bones of Jesus, I don't know how you do it, but let's just say you did, then we'd have to say, yeah, we were wrong on that. Let's go find another worldview. Um, but uh, I don't... And ever anticipate that happening. Why? Because the evidence for the resurrection is that good.
0: And and as a historian, you really never are, you, you never have the ability, like a philosopher, to try to deal with black and white as if we can have absolute certainty on anything, right? right but but whenever you're talking about these things like you said it's it's the sufficiency of probability that determines it right and some people are very uncomfortable with that and i understand that we've dealt with that a lot around here trying to get people to understand there is a sufficiency in probability you know uh, is this is there going to be a comet that comes tonight and destroys the earth um i say no you say are you certain well not totally certain uh, how can you be certain? Well, I, I don't know. Then why don't you live in fear of that? Mm-hmm. You know, I, like you said. But we always work on probability factors, right? Yep. And whenever we say it's probably the sun is going to shine tomorrow, <laughs> you know, we're not certain it's going to shine tomorrow. If you're talking philosophical certainty, but from the type of certainty that we have to live with every day, yeah, we're certain it's going
2: to sh- it's going to shine tomorrow yeah, there's very little that we can know with let's call it a mathematical type certainty. You know it was really a, an epiphany for me was uh, several years ago I accompanied Bill Craig. He asked me to come along with him when he first debated Bart Ehrman up at uh, Holy Cross University. And uh, was it his first debate with him? I think he's only had one hmm. with, with Ehrman. And the next day, uh, he gave a talk at MIT. Uh, it was a dinner, and he brought in a bunch of professors. Craig did, Craig did yeah on something about how the A-theory of time uh, sheds light in this area. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. I mean, Bill is just, his mind is just amazing. And, and, you know, I tease him, too. I say, you know, you like to study all, answer all the questions nobody's asking. I saw the you know. video of
1: you on YouTube where he was talking <laughs> about uh, he's working on mathematics right now or something I think. Yeah, something talking about, about, talking about that. Yeah, something abstract actually.
2: entities and yeah. and all of this, you yeah. <laughs> know, is is red eternal and <laughs> yeah. you know, um, but I mean he's just a brilliant guy and he gave this great lecture and I'm sitting at this table and I'm having dinner and discussion with uh, two physics professors from MIT and a Harvard professor who's a philosopher a philosopher of science at Harvard. And so, you know, a lot of brain power at this, at this table. I'm finishing up my, my my doctoral dissertation at this point and had been doing some stuff on the philosophy of history and, and everything and uh, talking about, you know, here's the criteria for the best explanation when historians have to, you know, we look for before adjudicating on a matter. How how certain must one be before you say, okay, this is what happened? What degree of, histor- of historical certainty do you need? And I said, I, I, I do think it's valuable to cross disciplines at times and find out what people in other disciplines are doing. So let me ask you guys as scientists, what kind of criteria must be met before you say this is what happened in science and physics? And there's a little bit of pause and then one physics professor at MIT said, well, we really don't have any. Well, what do you mean? He said, well, the thing is in physics, our data is so fragmented we just don't have a whole lot to go on. And so we form hypotheses. And, you know, that's what we hold for a while. And then a couple of years later, we abandon them and have a new hypothesis. And, and I said, well, well th- th- you don't have any solid criteria or scientific method that you go by to say, you know, this is, what, this is the way reality is. And I said, well, no, not really. And I said, but I thought physics was the most certain of all the sciences because it was based in mathematics. And he says, it is the most certain of all the sciences. And yes, it is based in mathematics, but there's very little in physics that we know with a great amount of, of certainty. Mm-hmm. And that's what the two MIT guys said. And then I looked over at the Harvard philosopher of science and he just smiled and nodded his head and said, yep, that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, you know, if that's the way it is in physics that we hold our conclusions with an open hand based on <coughs> probability, And this is the most certain of the sciences. I have nothing to be ashamed of when it comes to this is the way we do things in history. Mm. And that was just a real eye-opener for me. Uh, Again, we're not talking about faith here. Faith bridges the gap. Lessing's ditch, crossing Lessing's ditch. But um, we're looking at what we can establish, historically speaking. And there, like you said, Michael, we're looking at degrees, varying degrees of probability.
1: on page 171 in your book uh, uh, Bart Ehrman says there still remains though a huge I'd even say insurmountable problem when discussing Jesus' miracles even if miracles are possible there is no way for the historian who sticks strictly to the canons of historical evidence to show that they have ever happened Uh, How would you respond to that? Can a miracle be studied historically?
2: I think it can. And the first thing I'd say is, well, where are the canons to which Ehrman uh, refers? I mean, uh, when I heard him first debate William Lane Craig uh, at Holy Cross University, I was wanting, it's like, okay, I I need to debate this guy. He's claiming to be a historian. He's saying, I'm not going to debate as a theologian or a philosopher. I'm a historian. And I'm thinking, okay, well, that's just up my alley here. And the more I heard him speak, the more I realized that he really hadn't studied the philosophy of history. Why? Because just about every biblical scholar, he's a biblical scholar, and just about any biblical scholar out there hasn't studied the philosophy of history and historical method. Um, Go to your Ivy League schools, just take them, the eight of them, and look at their undergraduate, graduate, doctoral level seminars and um, in the departments of religion and philosophy and see how many courses are offered on the philosophy of history and historical method. Combine them all up for undergraduate, graduate, doctoral level, all the Ivy League schools, and you come out with a grand total of one. Mm And yet, many of these uh, graduates in the master's and doctoral level uh, co- uh, programs at these Ivy League schools will get out. They'll call themselves historians of Jesus, and they've never had a single class on how to do history.
0: You see, I mean, let's pause there for a moment because that's the thing that got to me so much when I was reading his book. And, and it's one of the. Could you imagine us sitting down and having a discussion about, say, the Book of John, and everybody's giving their opinions on the Book of John? You know, and there's all kinds of varying interpretations of what happened in John chapter six, and and. You know, eat my flesh and drink my blood, that kind of stuff. And then we go around the table and find out that there's none of them that have ever taken a hermeneutics course. None of them have ever taken a class on how to study the Bible. It's just, they all come, and that, that, well, the reason why I know how to study the Bible is because I've done it, you know, since I was a kid or something like that. And, And that's what you're saying here is that we've got this group of scholars who are waxing eloquent about whether or not Christ really rose from the grave or whether or not this really happened or what happened to the empty tomb, all that kind of stuff. And none of them have really taken any type of substantial... Uh, course that, uh, that would be about how to study history.
2: Yeah, they, they talk about things like, you know, they take things like the criteria for authenticity for those sayings and deeds of Jesus and things like that. But they don't do anything in terms of weighing hypotheses, how to actually do history, what is historical knowledge, and all this. When you do this and you study the philosophy of history, you find all these historians coming out and, and saying almost in a single voice there are no canons of history. In other words, a canon is something, it's a principle, it's a belief, uh, uh, an approach that is accepted by virtually all practitioners. And so when Ehrman says the canons of history don't allow you to investigate a miracle claim, well, the majority of of, of historians are saying there are no canons of history. In fact, there's a famous quote by the uh, uh, historian, uh, philosopher of history, Peter Novick, in his book The Noble Dream. He says, uh, by the 1980s, the history of discipline... Uh, resembled much like what we read in the book of Judges, that there was no king in Israel and that every man did what was right in his own eyes. So there are no canons of history. That's what they agree. So if there's no canons of history, um, how can you say that the canons of history say that historians can't investigate miracle claims? Um, So that's bogus. The whole thing is bogus to begin with, what he's saying. And he's saying the miracles, by their very definition, are the least probable explanation. Well, in my study, I found about 23 different definitions of what a miracle is. Uh, And and Ehrman gives several. So uh, I think two different definitions of what he says is a miracle. Why must miracles be the least probable explanation? Um, uh, He gives an example at one point of, say, uh, tell 100 billion people, estimated number who have lived in the history, human history tell them to walk across a lukewarm swimming pool they will all sink so what are the chances that jesus walked on water one in 100 billion i would come back and say well no that's that's a that's not a good way of of calculating probabilities uh say 100 billion people have tried to walk across a lukewarm swimming pool they all sink and then my son although he's 17 let's just say he's three and i say okay zach you're last try to walk across the swimming pool. i can't do it dad sure you can no what makes you think a 100 billion people can't give me your hand zach So he gives me his hands, I hold him over the water, and then I walk along the swimming pool holding his hands, and he walks on water. A hundred billion people trying to walk on water doesn't do anything in terms of establishing a prior probability that my son couldn't. You say, well, wait a minute, Mike, you cheated. After all, you were an external agent who assisted him. Precisely. Uh, When it comes to Jesus walking on water, yeah, uh, what a hundred billion people uh, unable to do it shows that people can't do that by natural causes. But it doesn't say if God wanted to walk on water, wanted to help Jesus to do it, that he couldn't do it. A hundred billion people dying and staying dead only shows, as my friend Tim McGrew says, that dead, critter, dead critters stay dead apart from the intervention of God. But if God exists and wanted to raise Jesus, well, then the chances are 100% that he's going to be raised from the dead. So it, it's comparing apples and oranges here. What, what Ehrman is saying here is just an illegitimate use of probabilities. Hmm guys
1: that's good stuff we're all in pause
0: of uh that was good guys audience what you got for me if you, if you were going to uh relook at your book if you were going to relook, re-look at your book
2: for 700 pages,
0: for 700 pages what would, what you, would, what would no, i'm just kidding
2: or I wouldn't what would you take out or what would you anything? take out
0: and or, or put back in
2: I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't take out anything from it. I would uh, rephrase some things, like um, uh, I've since been able to, it, it, even though it's in here about my argument for, from Paul believing the bodily resurrection, I've since found ways to communicate that with a little more clarity. Um, I've also done more study on Matthew's raised saints in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one through 53. And um, so I would include a, a more information on that uh, from my studies. Um, so yeah, there's a couple things I, I just say a little bit differently, but I wouldn't take anything out of it.
0: Second edition might include
2: this. Yeah. Second edition could include this. Yeah. All yeah. right, hey, Brett, did you have something?
0: Well, I'm looking at this magazine, the real Jesus put out by us news report. Real Jesus put out by us news world report.
1: Yeah. And, uh, this Amy Bernstein deals with
2: these new documents and, uh, that how did that enter in uh, did you constantly have to be updated with uh, these new scrolls
0: these uh, new documents maybe other gospels Amy Bernstein mentions new documents do we have to continually update your Yeah what, what new
2: documents does she refer to yet? Well the Nag, uh, Nag Hammadi library Yeah Well those aren't so new they've been around since the 1940s yeah. So um you know, the Da Vinci Code is the one that, uh, you know, brought those popularized them to to the public. But there's nothing in them that are really worthwhile in telling us about the historical Jesus. Uh, the Nagamati Library is from, I, I, I think it's the fourth century. Um, and it's uh, um, uh, a lot of Gnostic writings in there. And, and virtually all scholars, or I should say the majority of scholars, agree that the Gnostic stuff came later. The only things that uh, I, I think that scholars debate on would be the Gospel of Thomas and some things about the Gospel of Peter. You'd have some, you know, radical okay. scholars on the left yeah, like, a, those are cited in. Yeah, like a John Dominic Cross and a Helmut yeah. Kirster at Harvard and things like that. They would say like, they like to put the Gospel of Peter, uh, the Egerton papyri, the um, uh, Gospel of Thomas in the first century. But I think there's really good reason to believe that these things are much later. Nicholas Perrin has come up with some really good uh, arguments, I believe, to show that Thomas is late 2nd century. Um, Most scholars place Thomas in the mid-2nd century rather than sometime in the 1st. You know, these these guys are just grasping at straws. Um, And and the fact is, we can trace the uh, beliefs of the Jerusalem apostles, those who knew Jesus, we can trace their beliefs... The, uh, back to them, the, uh, beliefs back to them in terms of the proclamation of Jesus' bodily resurrection. Now, if Jesus' apostles were, were preaching, those who walked with him were preaching Jesus' bodily resurrection, doesn't really matter whether there was another early uh, so-called Christian community that was more Gnostic in nature. I want to know what Jesus' apostles were preaching. And um, uh, You know, If you've got others than Jesus' apostles that are preaching differently than what Jesus' apostles were preaching, it's non-Christian. I want to go with what Jesus and his apostles were preaching in terms of the eyewitnesses and what they said. Uh, So um, what what the non library does is it tells us what later so-called Christianities from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries believed. And this is even what Bart Ehrman has to say about it. He's the one that says it tells us more about Christianities, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, than it does the first century. And Ehrman himself says, if you want to know about the real Jesus, the place to go are the New Testament Gospels. And that's Ehrman on it. Yeah. You know her comment on here is not everything, it appears, can be demonstrated empirically. Yeah, well, that would have, uh, yeah, not everything's empirical. Uh, you can demonstrate empirical. You can't do any of that, because we can't go back to a time machine. Yeah. But you can't do that with geology either, can we? You can't do that with any part of ancient history because none of the eyewitnesses are alive. All we have are ashes from the past that we collect together, as Richard Evans at Cambridge, a philosopher of history, says. And we rape these ashes to try to bring them back to life and, and look into the past. Uh, that's what we're doing. And we have text for this, ancient text. We look at these things. Yeah, we can't get, go back in a time machine, but that's the way it works with a lot of the different sciences. Uh-
0: Hey, listen, we are getting real close to having in this broadcast as well, and I don't want to end without asking this and kind of getting this uh, with our audience. Whenever you've studied this more than just about anybody I know, Gary Habermas maybe uh, has studied it uh, more than you or alongside you, he'd be comparable. But whenever you're looking at this, and and I value this from you because I I think – ironically I, I in some ways I, I value people who are doubters and come out the other side right because i think you've wrestled with this in a different way personally and you have you've probably have this answer for this question but whenever you're in your moments or your times of doubt or skepticism what is the thing that most with regards to the resurrection establishes you you, you go back to you and you say oh yeah i forgot about that oh I can't get past that, so I'm, my doubt can only go so far, or at least my intellectual doubt can only go so far. What, what would be the one or two things that uh, stand out to you most in your studies?
2: Well, I find out that, uh, you know, after all, because I am a second-guesser, and that's, uh, again, it's one of my idiosyncrasies, it's not the intellectual things that cause me to doubt anymore. I think that's pretty much settled in my mind, that the intellectual, when you approach it intellectually, resurrection wins. Just to give you one example, too, uh, when I was at SBL, I bumped into a friend of mine, Peter Crawford, who is pretty much an atheist. I debated him last year at the University of Johannesburg. Uh, Neat guy. I like him. And uh, he came up. He said, I finally got your book. I was reading it. I read your critique of of my hypothesis. And he says, I just want to thank you for representing it correctly and accurately. He says, most people criticize me, misrepresent my view, and you, you got it pretty much spot on. And um, he says, Mike, let me ask you this. Don't don't you think it all comes down to worldview? And I said, Peter, yeah, I do. And I said, now let me ask you a question. Worldview aside, given God's existence, if God exists, do you think the evidence for the resurrection, the historical evidence, is enough to establish that it actually occurred? And he says, given God's existence, yes. Mm. So um, yeah, intellectually, we've we've got the goods when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. What causes me doubt are really um, what what Gary Habermas would call emotional doubt. It would be like, well, what if I'm wrong? What if, you know, Islam is correct after all? Um, Even if there's a one in a trillion chance that we're wrong and someone else is right, you know, the the consequences could be horrible. So, uh, you know, you focus on that and well, that's emotional doubt because again, I just make up the one in a trillion chance, you know, but, but I would rather go with the 999 billion, and let them have the one chance in a trillion, you know, I'll take all the others. So it's emotional doubt or for me, it's kind of like, um, how can this be? I mean, really the God of the universe really knows about me and cares for me and loves me. It just seems too good to be true. So these are emotional doubts, and Gary Habermas has a book online called The Thomas Factor. He published it several years ago. It's out of print, and uh, it really helped me in dealing with emotional doubt. So I would say to any listeners out there who deal with doubt, that's a real good book to read, The Thomas Factor. You can find
0: that book on www.dealingwithdoubt.org, dealingwithdoubt.org. That's a sister site of ours. Um, but uh, quickly. Okay, I, that was wonderful, and that was perfect. But I got one more that follows up. Um, as far as the strengths of the resurrection and a historian, what is the strongest evidence that you would say that the resurrection happened? One or two strongest evidences.
2: Well, I'd have to say Paul. You've okay. got because he's he's a non-believer at the time of his experience that he believed was the risen Jesus appearing to him. Jesus was the last person he wanted to see, so he wasn't grieving, he's persecuting the church, he thinks he's doing God a favor by doing this, it's the will of God to do it. And then he has this experience that he believes is the risen Jesus appearing to him. So it's not just Jesus' friends who has these experiences, it's also Paul who has these experiences. That would be one. A second would be the group appearances. These are very difficult to account for uh, with psychological phenomena because group hallucinations are extremely rare, if not impossible, from what we know. from Have you ever psychology. heard of a group hallucination? Uh, you know, more recently, um, yeah, uh, Jay, um, uh, Jake O'Connell has written an article that was published in the Tyndale Bulletin uh, that I, I think shows that group hallucinations may be possible. Um, but um, uh, other than that, I mean, the, the most recent... Uh, Comprehensive work on it is "Hallucinations: The Science of Idiosyncratic Perception," 2008, American Psychological Association, published by them by um, uh, Aylman and Laury. E. And um, and I-, I communicated with the authors, and Laury e got back to me. I-, I had asked them why didn't you deal with group hallucinations? I was particularly interested in it. Says, well, we really couldn't find anything on it. So. Um, in terms of the professional literature, it just isn't there. And well, it seems we like somewhat of a
0: self-defeating thing, too. If I said, well, we had group dreams, you know, everybody had the same dream, you'd say, well, there's got to be some supernatural exactly. cause for this, and, and there's got to be some supernatural cause for a group hallucination, which kind of is self-defeating at that point, maybe. If, yeah, and it's the group
2: appearances that are the most strongly evidenced mm. over the, the individual appearances. So the group appearances make it very difficult to say it's a hallucination. Well,
0: let's stop there and talk about what you just said for a moment, and then we're closing out, okay? Group hallucination. Here's the deal, folks, okay? You can either believe, number one, that Jesus Christ, and let's say these are the two options that are out there, number one, that Jesus Christ actually appeared to a group of people, or number two, that there's a phenomenon out there called group hallucinations that we have no evidence for. You've never had one before. You've never heard of anybody that's had one before. In the history of time, you don't know about this, but it may be true. That they've had one. Therefore, we have uncertainty, and therefore, let's don't make any decisions. Again, ninety nine billion nine hundred ninety nine million nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine to one. I mean, that's what we're dealing with right here. What's better outside there—a group hallucination, or, or that he actually rose from the grave? What's
2: much more plausible? I think that's what you got to look at. That's why you subject your hypotheses to controlled historical method because it reveals the strengths and weaknesses of a hypothesis. And yeah, it's extremely improbable, if not impossible, to have uh, not one, not two, but three group hallucinations um, in which it appears not 50%, which would be, uh, well, sorry, 7% of all senior adults bereaving the loss of a loved one experience a visual hallucination of that loved one in multiple studies. It averages about 7% of visual hallucination. And that's the group with the highest percentage of having a visual hallucination. So you're not saying not 7%, but an unthinkable 100% had visual hallucinations. The content was of Jesus. Now, if they were fearing the guards, why not uh, have an auditory hallucination that the guards were coming to the door for you wouldn't that be just as likely as out of grief experience a visual hallucination of jesus but they had 100 percent of them visual hallucination of jesus simultaneously and the content was so similar that they all thought they were seeing the same thing mm. it wasn't jesus over here sitting in a corner while another saw him floating at the you know up at the ceiling and things like that they all thought they saw the same thing and they were convinced they saw him in group states not once twice but three times minimum like this And someone someone would say, yeah, but what's more unlikely, a guy rising from the dead or a group hallucination? You still got to go with the hallucination. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. It's unlikely resurrection by natural causes. But if God exists and wanted to raise Jesus, it's 100%. So there's no prior probability that you can calculate. It's inscrutable in terms of the probability of Jesus rising from the dead. But it's extremely improbable, if not impossible, for the group hallucination. So that's why you pick the resurrection hypothesis over. And it's not just group hallucination. You've got to account for the appearance to Paul, who's not in a frame of mind to hallucinate. So that's why you look, you've got to account for all the facts, do it with, uh, without forcing any of them to fit, going with you know, what we know from science today about you know, hallucinations and stuff. And, and all of this put together, least ad hoc, least amount of improvisation, and you find the resurrection wins every time by a significant margin. And that just pumps me up Mm -hmm. as a believer because it means God really exists. He loves us. Uh, We can have eternal life, and a personal relationship with the God of the universe. And we can see this. It's a reasonable and enlightened faith. It's not a leap in the dark, it's a leap in the light because of the historical evidence we have for the resurrection of Jesus.
0: That might preach, maybe.
2: I think it'll preach. Yeah, yeah. You know,
1: and I do too, just to give you kudos too, I love that you are not afraid of science. You know, I think you're doing what, what we teach a lot here too of, of don't tell people, stop asking questions, just believe that you're, a- you're asking questions to the point that you're even finding out who are the experts on hallucinations let me actually talk to them and let me be informed in my faith and so just uh, kudos to you as well i think you're you're showing people you're mentoring people on how as c.s lewis did generations ago mentoring people on how to intellectually integrate their faith in their life and just be a whole person who is wholly following the savior and i love that and thanks for doing that jj any closing words no, it's, uh, it's fun to sit across from you, Mike, and uh, have you be a real guy. You're not weird. And, uh, <laughs> He's not, a little uh, weird, but <laughs> we're all a little weird. So. So, uh, and, and I would say, for those that might feel overwhelmed by the size of this book, uh, maybe, they, maybe they're a nursing mother, maybe who knows what, and this doesn't feel like a realistic part of their life, the table of contents is so good that I think people really could dip into the places where they're most... Uh, feeling anxious or doubting and i think they could really use it as a, as a reference work in some ways that would really be encouraging to their
0: faith also uh, the resurrection of jesus a case for the resurrection of jesus is uh, available we've been discussing the resurrection of jesus a historiographical approach right history a new historiographical approach historiographical historiographical mm-hmm. historiographical okay <laughs> uh, approach Approach. Approach. (laughs) And, Mike, it's been great to have you here at the Credo House. Uh, Those of you who are here at the Credo House tonight, Mike will be giving his testimony at uh, 730 and uh, open it up afterwards for discussion questions there. So been great having you, Mike. Thanks for joining us on Theology Unplugged. Remember, we are a not-for-profit and as Tim said at the very beginning, we need lots and lots of money because we want to plant lots and lots of Credo houses. All right, guys, we'll talk to you next uh, time.
2: Let me say something, too. Uh, this is a great ministry, so anyone out there thinking of giving to Credo House, this is really a good investment. You guys are doing some great things here. Thank, Thank you very much. Until next time. Let this
0: man
1: rest. Right. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org
0: Thank you for listening, and God bless.